Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. This morning's scripture reading is Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Hi, guys. Hi. Oh, I love that. Uh, My name is Fabs. If you're new here, I'm on staff here at The Vine. And I am so excited to be with you on this summer Sunday. We are kicking off a new series, and I love getting to be the one to kick it off. We are going to start a series called I Wish I Would Have Known. I Wish I Would Have Known. This, the Mark was hanging out with some of his friends, and they were kind of having a conversation about if you could go back in time and interact with your 20-year-old self, what would you tell them? What, what is the thing that you wish you would have known at that age? And out of that conversation was kind of birthed the idea to do a little sermon series where a few of us share a few things that we wish we would have known when we were young uh, and just kind of starting out. (laughs) It was tricky for me to kind of pick my topic. Uh, I've had a hard time with it. First of all, because one of the things I wish I would have known when I was 20 is that I didn't know things. I wish I would have known that. And I was very confident, very sure of how I saw the world and what was true and what was not. And I preparing for this, I looked back at a blog I wrote when I turned 30 that was 30 things I wish I'd knew when I was 20. Like, it's basically this sermon series, but written by me a decade ago. And like 28 of those things, I'm like, <laughs> I don't think those things anymore. So it makes me a little nervous <laughs> to be like, here I am, and I'm holding this very loosely with an open hand, knowing that life is in, in process, and I'm in process, and things, you learn things along the way. And so what I know, what I wish my 20-year-old self would have known standing here as a 40-year-old might be different (laughs) in another 20 years. So it was also hard to pick a topic because when you think about your 20-year-old self, right, they didn't know a lot of things. But there's a lot of things that that they only can know now because of the life they've lived, right? Things I know now I know because of what I've been through. And so it's hard to, like, rewind and think, you know, 20-year-old, I wish I could intervene, and keep you from certain decisions, to protect you from certain things when I know that you've learned a lot through it. So I tried to kind of approach the series with the lens of like, okay, if I could meet my 20-year-old self who's going to live the life that I've lived so far, what tools would I want her to have? What do I wish she would have known that would have helped her engage better with the story that she was about to start living? So my thing is that I wish I would have started out with a better theology of suffering, which I know is not really how you kick off the sermon series, but that's, that's where I am. I wish I would have had a better understanding as a 20-year-old of how suffering in the world worked, why it happens, when it happens, to who it happens, all those kinds of things. So today we're going to talk about the things I wish I would have known. I wish I would have known first that life is unpredictable and that everyone suffers. I wish I would have known that life is unpredictable. It takes all these twists and turns. And really the only predictable thing, as far as I can tell so far about it, is that some of those twists and turns involve pain. 
I wish I had known that life is unpredictable and everyone suffers. And I wish I would have known how faith and hope engage with suffering. I wish I would have known that faith is like this thing that, that lets me go deeper into my suffering. And I wish I would have known that, that when I do that on the other side, I'll find hope. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I'm going to start off with life being unpredictable. Um, there's this experiment, this study that I love. It's at a, it was done at a graduate school in the Northeast, and they took this room full of 20-somethings and asked them, you know, what do you expect out of life? When you think about life, what is it that you expect? Imagine you me asking that to your 20-year-old self right now. Think about how you would have answered. The answers in the experiment were very consistent across all different demographics. They kind of listed out these major milestones that they could expect out of life, which I think I have a list of. They were going to graduate from college, get married, have kids, establish and advance in their career, and retire. These seem like pretty predictable life scripts. The only problem is they're actually not predictable life scripts. Maybe if I took a snapshot of America 50 years ago or 100 years ago, these might have been a predictable trajectory, but statistically speaking, these are no longer predictable things. Half of women are now childless at 30. Half of women, 50% of women won't have kids before the age of 30. 40% of the births in 2020 were to unmarried women, which means our idea that life kind of happens in this way, and every now and then maybe there's an exception to the rule that's, that's just not statistically speaking true. 49% of women over 65 are unpartnered, meaning they're single. Three in 10 women ages 18 to 29 are single, not even dating. So this idea that 20-something-year-old Fabs had of this cultural script that kind of been programmed into her, which would have been these same milestones, it actually isn't, statistically speaking, that predictable. And I did not know that. The problem with cultural scripts, right, is there's no one, like there's no uh, position at the White House. It's the person who's like, what, what are the stats? Okay, everybody, get in a room. We're going to change our cultural script. Cultural scripts are like things that are handed down from generation to generation. And, and no one's, like, telling you them. They're just, like, written in, like, all the different details of life and, like, 12-year-old Fabs playing the game MASH, if you ever play, played that. Or, like, 16-year-old Fabs taking her career test. Like, she's going to get to just decide her career. The only factor that goes into which career she's going to have is what she wants, what she likes. None of the other factors could matter. Or 20-something-year-old Fabs who was hanging out with her college roommates talking about whether or not she was going to get married at 24 or 28. Like, those decisions were within her control, but that's what I thought, right? That was the predictable life script. And I wish she would have known that life is unpredictable, that these things aren't this predictable sequence of events. And in fact, really the only predictable thing about life is that at some point, it is not fun, right? At some point, suffering comes. Let's look back at that experiment again. What do you notice that they're missing here? What do you expect out of life? There's nothing... Nothing unpleasant on this list. These things actually aren't that predictable, but you know what is predictable? Loss of a parent, sickness, things like struggling with your health, struggling with your relationships, with your marriage, death of a friend, death of yourself. 100% of people in this room can expect out of life a major milestone that at some point they will face their own mortality. The problem with the cultural script in the West is not just that it makes predictable things that actually aren't predictable, it's that it skews positive. It denies this reality of suffering. And of course, like 
20-something-year-old Fabs would have told you, yeah, life is going to include suffering. But the unconscious, subconscious, cultural script that I was operating out of really didn't expect that, anticipate that. And the problem with that is then when it happens, you're so caught off guard, you can't even respond to the suffering because you're so busy processing, why is this happening to me? What did I do wrong? What did God do wrong? Right, because we like to, in the church, take that Western script and just bring God into it, just spiritualize it. Right, we read the Bible through that cultural script lens, and so we encounter verses like so many of the verses we've been talking about in the book of Psalms, where God says things like, you know, I'm going to deliver you, I'm going to protect you, I'll bring you out of the suffering that you're in in the world. We read verses like that, we read them through this lens that already has in mind that maybe we can escape suffering already hidden someplace deep inside of us, and then we just like God eyes or spiritualize it, right? We're like, well, maybe there's a way to get out of suffering if you're just more obedient, if you love God, if you follow God. And I know we know better than to say it, but it comes out, right? It comes out in the moments you suffer, and you're like, what did I do wrong to get here, or what did God do wrong for me to get here, right? But surely Jesus kind of settles for us when he says quite explicitly, those in this life, you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. He doesn't say, like, maybe you will or, like, it's likely that you will. He says, in this life, you will have suffering. You will have trouble. And surely he settles it even with his own life, right? He suffers. And Jesus doesn't suffer because he has an idolatry issue. He doesn't suffer because, like, oh, he's holding so tightly to the things of the world and God needs, the Father needs to kind of loosen his grip. That's not why Jesus is suffering, He's not suffering because he disobeyed the Father. He's suffering because he's a human in this broken world. And every human in this broken world is going to suffer. It's the predictable part of our unpredictable life script, right? I wish 20-something-year-old Fabs had known that. Not because it would have, like, protected me necessarily from pitfalls, but I wish I'd known that so that I knew how to engage with those pitfalls that I knew, like, hey, if you do dodge that pitfall, there's another one coming because suffering's coming for everyone, right? Everyone in this room, this Anne Lamott quote, but she says, everyone is going to lose someone they can't live without. Everyone in this room is going to lose someone they cannot live without. There's this uh, horrible (laughs) illustration I wish I'd never heard, and now I'm going to let you all hear it. Uh, In uh, Tim Keller, who's a (laughs) pastor in New York, he is, in one of his sermons, he shares this illustration of sitting around the dinner table with his family and looking at all these people he loves so much and realizing someone at this table is going to have to watch everybody else at this table die. And that is like a horrible thought. It makes me feel physically ill. But it's actually a horrible reality. It's not just a horrible thought. It's a horrible reality, and I wish 20-year-old Fabs had known that, not so that she could prepare for whatever terrible thing is coming or get her heart so it was stronger, nothing like that, but so that when 30-something-year-old Fabs is lying on the floor because she has lost someone that she cannot live without, that in that moment she would have been able to enter into the suffering that comes from that kind of loss instead of what she was doing, which was being caught up in this tornado of chaos and confusion, shame, feels of feelings of failure and isolation that come from not understanding why this is happening, right? All, all, so much time that could have been spent processing what had actually happened was spent processing, why is this happening to me? What have I done wrong? Why is this coming into my life? And I had no shortage of reasons that I could think of, things that I'd done 
things that might not be true about God? I wish I'd known that the answer to that question is because everyone suffers. Everyone is gonna have that feeling that 30-year-old Fabs had that night on the floor, right? Life is unpredictable and bad things happen to everybody. And knowing that wouldn't have set me free from pain. I don't wish I'd known that so I could step back from pain, but knowing that would have freed me up from this kind of confusing life script pain so that I could enter into this kind of pain, which is processing, facing, dealing with the brokenness that's actually happening, making sense, entering into the feelings that come with the loss. Which brings me to the second thing that I wish I would have known. I wish I would have known that faith, faith is not this thing that kind of pulls you out of suffering or makes it hurt less. But faith is like this rope that you tie around your waist that enables you to go deeper in to the darkness and to the pit of suffering. And I wish I'd known that hope is not this thing that someone come, like hands you like a little blanket to help you feel warm on the way down or lift you out of it, make it not feel so bad. But hope is this thing that is produced, is found on the other side of that suffering. Let's look at the verse that Melissa read for us. This is such a deep, rich verse and I can't get into all of it, but what I want us to do is kind of tag for us, I think my next slide has this, Katie, there's a couple of references of of faith, right? This verse is actually unpacking for us the benefits of faith. We have uh, been justified, how? Through faith. We've obtained access into this grace in which we stand, how? By faith. And not only that, not only those two benefits, we have another benefit from faith, which is that we Glory in our sufferings. I spent so much time this week looking for a different translation because I really hate that. (laughs) I really hate it. And most of the other translations are rejoice, which doesn't work for me any better. I don't like this. I don't, it doesn't sit well with me. Maybe some of you don't have the church baggage that I have that makes me feel a little bit when I hear that. Like what he's saying is if you have faith, then your sufferings are going to feel great. You're going to have a great attitude about it. You're going to have positive emotions when bad things happen. But then I realized, like, oh, yeah, I'm just, I'm reading this scripture again through that Western script, right? Because in the West, we resist negative emotions. What are negative emotions? Things like pain, anger, sorrow, suffering. We resist that. And we kind of show our, heart, our cards as a Western society when we call them negative emotions, like There are positive emotions and negative emotions. Like some emotions are good and some are bad. Some are helpful and healthy and some are not. And that is just not true. They're just reactions to different things. But I wonder if we've like, again, spiritualized or Jesusified that idea that positive emotions are good and negative emotions are bad. And we've just turned it into this faith system where we call people faithful if when bad things happen, they have positive emotional reactions. We call that faith, right? If you and I have a friend, a mutual friend, let's say, who's going through a really hard time, we're catching up on Sunday, and you're like, how is our friend? And I'm like, you know, she's just so faithful. She's so strong. What do you think of? I promise you, some version of your mind thinks of, well, maybe she's not, like, totally losing it. Maybe she's not weeping all day long. She's probably getting out of bed. She's taking care of the kids, or she's going to work. She's, she's keeping on going, <laughs> That is a Western idea that we've just turned into faith that, that's not actually what we see in the scripture, right? When my dad died, I was in, uh, on a mission trip. I worked for a church at the time, and I was on a mission trip for work, 
and I stayed for the rest of the mission trip when I got the, the message that he had died. I came home. I didn't miss a day of work. I went right back to work, didn't miss a beat. And I remember people passing me in the hallways at work, and I worked for church, I said that. So it's not weird that they would ask me, how are you doing, how are you in God, you know? And I'd be like, you know, God is just so good. And what I meant by that was I'm not feeling bad emotions. <laughs> I'm not feeling pain. I'm not feeling negative emotions, right? That's what I meant. And that idea, I just kind of superimposed that like, if God is so good, that means you feel good about bad things. And the problem was that I was doing well, faithful, fabs, not feeling any feelings. And then I would go to our staff meetings. It was like the first time I'd like slow down in my day and I, they'd turn the lights off and we'd do worship music in our staff meetings. And it would be like everything got quiet and everything got still. And I would have this sensation like, I'm about to start screaming. Like, I mean, literally screaming. And I was like, that's not good. <laughs> this is not good. So I'd get up and leave the room before I would just like start screaming in a staff meeting, which is inappropriate. And I, my friends would come ask me how I was and we started processing, what is this sensation you're having when anything slows down enough, you feel this like panic? What is happening? You know, and they would say, what are you not believing about the gospel? What are you not trusting about God? Because that's how, that's how we talked to each other. That's how we were told to talk to each other. That's what we thought. That if you trusted the gospel, if you believed in hope, then you wouldn't have these dramatic negative emotions, right? Can you imagine, like, the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus is about to die, he's feeling overwhelming anxiety because a bad thing is about to go down. If his friends had been able to stay awake, can you imagine they're sitting with him in the dark, and one of them is like, Jesus, what are you not believing about God's character? I mean, it's insane, right? But that's how we act. We act like faith is this rope that's going to pull us up out of this pit. Instead of faith being this thing that enables us to go deeper in, that night in the garden when, when Jesus is praying and he's feeling all this anxiety, he's overwhelmed and an angel comes to strengthen him. That's what the text says. I think slide up. Yeah. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And you know what happened when that angel strengthened him? He didn't get up off the ground, brush off his knees, and go to the cross. That's not why the angel strengthened him. The angel strengthened him so that he could pray more earnestly, being in anguish as a result of that strengthening. He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Faith, like believing true things about God enables us to enter into suffering. I don't mean just like a reaction that's like that thing hurt me and I feel pain. I mean entering into the full horror of the brokenness of the world and sharing God's heart that is grieved and angry and enraged and sad. And, and suffering is, is this entering into that, right? I wasn't having that feeling of I'm gonna start screaming in staff meeting because I wasn't trusting God. And I also wasn't having it because I was trusting God. I was having it because something bad had happened and I wasn't processing it. And my body, uh, like many writers these days are talking about our bodies as prophets, my body in its sweet way, its own truth that it knows is, is like you need to process things. Please process things. Not because my body is excited about pain, but because my body knows that is the path to healing. Right? You go to any counselor, you go to any therapist, they're not like, hey, what we're doing here is trying to make you feel bad because I like it when you have sad feelings. 
They do it because they believe there's a gift in grief, that this psychobiological process that we can do that involves our physical bodies and our souls and our spirits and our minds, and when we enter into suffering, when we untangle the narratives, it does something in us. It's healing. And that's part of this glorying in, rejoicing in, not the bad thing, but the ability we have as creations to make sense of it, to not let it have the last word that we can heal, that we are able to heal through things, right? Isn't that what this text says? Let's look at it again. We also glory in our sufferings, not because we're like, suffering's great, love it so much, not because we're like, bad things are good, because God said so. We're like, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces something. It makes something. It makes something that wasn't there before. Suffering, according to this verse, produces endurance or perseverance in this translation. Perseverance is like your ability to walk the path that is set for you without being swerved, without trying to dodge the feelings or the pain. The, the more we enter into and engage in our suffering, it produces in us this steel backbone of endurance that we can engage with hard things. And when we do, that produces in us, right? Endurance produces something. It produces character. This word character here, when Paul writes it in other places, he says proven worth. Like not you're earning your worth, not like all of a sudden you become this like great person because of suffering, but more like through this enduring of suffering, something's produced that is like the truest version of you, your proof of who God always said you were, of, of the character of this story that you were designed to be before everything went wrong. Your proven worth emerges, the truest version of you, and that character produces something. It produces hope, right? Hope. And I just love so much that hope comes at the end of this process. Don't we just try to put it everywhere else? Hope at the beginning to enable you to go through or hope some point in the middle to help you keep going or hope to pull you out of the feelings, right? But hope is the last thing in this process. Philip Yancey says, he, talking about Paul, he lists hope at the end instead of where I would normally expect it, at the beginning, as the fuel that keeps a person going. No, hope emerges from the struggle. It's a byproduct of faithfulness. Hope is not a thing that interrupts our suffering. It's a thing that's produced through our suffering, through our entering into the pain. And I wish, you know, like really you would want to do a whole sermon on what, what is the hope that's produced, right? It feels really important, but it's so vague and confusing in this verse that if someone does do a sermon on it, I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. But I'm still young, so, you know, I'll learn. Um, but what I do know about hope from this verse is two things. I know this kind of hope that's produced, it doesn't disappoint. It doesn't disappoint, meaning like, you think about all the hope and the reason we probably all hate the feeling of hope is because that feeling of disappointment when it's not met, this hope doesn't disappoint. It's not put to shame. It's going to come true. It's guaranteed. And the second thing, we know why that's true. We know why the hope doesn't disappoint. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. God's love has been poured into our hearts, not spoken over us by a beloved friend, not just preached to us on a Sunday, not like prayed over us in our darkest moments. This kind of hope is a product of God's love being poured into your heart, inside out, right? Inside out kind of hope. 
I don't know exactly what Paul was talking about, but I know my current perception of what this is. I can tell you what it feels like for me, which it feels like all those truths that I wrapped around my rope, wrapped around my waist to help me go deeper into suffering, things like you won't be alone, and God loves you, and you are going to find something in this, and your life is not ruined, and there is life to come. All those things that I had to like tell myself and pray over myself, the hope at the end feels like those things are inside out, like not a rope anymore. They're, they're like poured into my heart like cement, like they're the bedrock. I don't, I don't even need God to speak them over me. They're, they're inside out. They're just true. They're true. My worth is true. It's guaranteed, right? I was thinking about this week, um, obviously I've been thinking about the sermon, but it also coincided with a, an appointment with a new counselor. I started meeting with a new counselor, which, gosh, boy, what a process, am I right? You have to, like, unpack all this life that's happened. Um, and I was trying to catch her up on one specific incident. About seven years ago, I had a pretty traumatic experience, and I was catching her up on that. We were processing because, because there's still work to be done. Because I've done a lot of work in the last seven years, but turns out, news to me this week, there's still more suffering to enter into about this experience. And she asked me to give kind of a snapshot of what life was like before the experience, and a snapshot of the experience, and then a snapshot of what life is like after. So start with the snapshot of before this experience, but the problem with that, the problem with any before snapshot is it's really an after snapshot of something else, right? So we have to rewind a little bit. 20-something young-year-old fabs, very predictable life script. Turns out there are things that she did not know that were going to be in her story. And one of those things was that she was going to make some terrible decisions. She was going to really hurt people. And she was going to do things that she was deeply ashamed of. And so that version of fabs hadn't told anybody anything. I couldn't. I felt so much shame about the choices I'd made. And I was so scared that what I had done had changed me forever, had altered my identity. So this before snapshot was this moment when I finally told someone my story. And I remember I was sitting on the floor, and my sweet friend was sitting on the couch, and with like a trembling voice, I tell her what I've done. And she looks at me, and she leans in, and she says, nothing about you has changed, and I know exactly who you are. And I was telling my counselor this week, it was such a healing moment because my deepest fear had just been that this thing that I'd done had totally changed who I was, that, that everything I thought I knew about myself, about my worth and my value in this world had been altered, that nothing about me was trustworthy or true, that everything I was doing was just a lie. It was such a beautiful moment. You fast forward a few years, and I am in an, another experience where a lot of people are hearing about things I've done in my life, and it was different. <laughs> And it was kind of this uh, constant echo chamber of everything about you has changed for us. We don't trust anything about you. We never knew you. Even though we've known you this whole time, we know nothing about you now. This information has cast you an entirely new light. You are a different person to us. And for me, it was like a systematic dismantling of my personhood, of things I'd fought really hard to hold on to. So you wrap that up, and she's like, and what is it like now, you know, seven years after processing and suffering through that experience? I like shut my eyes, and I'm thinking, what is it like now? And she wanted me to write it down so that I had like a little thing written down, and I wrote, I know who I am. That's what it feels like now. 
feels like I know who I am. And I shut the screen from that Zoom call, and I added on, I wrote on my paper this extra part that I hadn't told her, which was, and I don't need that friend, I don't need that girl to tell me that anymore. And I don't mean that in like a, I don't need her. I don't mean that at all. I'm so thankful that she was my first experience of that. But I do mean I don't need her to tell me that anymore because it's, it's inside out. Like, this is a true thing. I would love to have people speak it over me all day long. I love that God sings it over me all day long. But his love, that truth, that my worth has not changed, that I am who I am, that, that, that who, the things I've done don't define me, that truth, that I'm loved, that I'm worthy, that I'm valuable, that is poured into my heart. That's the purchase. That's what we produced through this suffering. That's what we've built. And not worth it. It's not worth it. I would never stand up here, I don't think, and say that this terrible thing that happened is worth this glorious thing that we've made because this terrible thing is a terrible thing. It's broken. It's wrong. And when I enter into God's heart about what happens to me, I feel his grief and his pain and his loss. I don't feel him being like, well, look what we did with it, you know? But when I look beyond that, when I look at the suffering that he and I have done in the dark, the wrestling we've done, yeah, I'm proud of that. Yes, I glory in it. I boast in it. Because it has produced something. That suffering produced this endurance, this part of me that's not going to be shaped by lies that have been spoken over me. It's going to hold to my purpose. And that endurance has produced in me this character that is the revelation of the fullness of who I am and who I was anyway. And that character has produced in me this hope that is God's love that I can close the computer and know, I know who I am. It's like a bedrock. It's done. It's settled. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about The Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to The Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.